Chris, brainstorming doesn't work. Can you guess whose voice that is? It's the voice of today's celebrity guest, Drew Boyd, who's been featured on the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Industry Week, Psychology Today, and Strategy Business. He's a 30-year industry veteran who's bringing a ton of his experience and successes on his work and innovation here to the Nurse Leader Network podcast today. Let's get started. Welcome to the Nurse Leader Network podcast with your host, Chris Racinos. Wherever you're going on your nurse leader journey, we're here to help you get there. All right. So today I am extremely excited. We have the best in the industry when it comes to innovation on our show today. So I'd like to introduce our guest today, Drew Boyd. Thank you so much for coming on the Nurse Leader Network podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Drew, so, you know, I'd like to really just kind of dig in. Everywhere I go, LinkedIn sites, conferences, anywhere you kind of go, everybody's really talking about innovation and creativity. My question for you is, can people actually learn how to be creative and innovative, or do you have to be born with it? (laughs) Yeah, that is probably the most uh, popular question that, that I get from people, and it's the biggest surprise. Yes, you can learn to be more creative. And I know that goes against everything you've learned in school, uh, that you've been told. But here's what's true. For thousands of years, everyday inventors and innovators have used patterns in their inventions, usually without even realizing it. And those patterns are now embedded into the products and services you see around you every day. Think of these patterns, Chris, as the DNA of a product or service. And so imagine if there was a way to take that pattern and reapply it to anything that you wanted to innovate. And so what I tell people is, guess what? I don't care where you are on the creativity scale. These patterns can boost your creative output. And and this comes as great news for companies that see innovation and realize how important it is. And this is what forms this method that I hope we have a chance to talk about today, systematic inventive thinking. Uh, It's a method that can be learned and applied by anyone. Okay, great. You know, you you mentioned that anybody could learn it um, and that you don't need to be born with it. What about people that we believed to be inherently talented and creative. So what comes to mind is the Beatles for me, you know, they, they hit records. They're known as, you know, some of the most creative in the music world. I mean, they seem to be, have been born with creativity in their, in their veins. What would you say about um, how we could learn to be that way? And if that is even possible. So this is what I think creates a lot of the myth. When you look at the highly successful creative people out there, uh, like like uh, musicians, like the Beatles, for example, no, no question, they were uh, very successful, probably the most successful band in all of history. In fact, one of the Beatles, Paul McCartney, has or had at one time two of the top 10 best-selling songs of all time. I mean, we're talking billion-dollar-selling songs, right? <laughs> and so you you got to ask yourself, I mean, clearly Paul McCartney was born with some creative uh, skills. And while I don't dispute that, here's what's true. If you study somebody like Paul McCartney, and I have, I've read biographies about him. I play guitar myself, so I'm, I'm very much into music. 
And here's the secret. Musicians like Paul, songwriters, use patterns. They use templates. In one of the biographies, Paul said as much that he and John Lennon would use a template before they get started. Now, what's interesting about highly creative people is, you know, they don't want you to know they use a pattern. They, they keep those formula to themselves. And, I, you know, it could be for a lot of reasons. Maybe they just don't want people to use their pattern. I think it's something as simple as, you know, using a pattern seems to take away from their creative genius. When in fact, that pattern is what boosts their creative output. And it's not just songwriters, Chris. It's musicians of other ilk. It's composers. It's artists like Salvador Dali or Pablo Picasso. Hey, look at any Pablo Picasso painting, and you would recognize it as a Picasso. Why? Because there's an underlying structure to it. And so you look at poets like Robert Frost, or you look at authors like Agatha Christie or Daniel Steele. Hey, they all use patterns. And that's the great thing is that creativity has a structure to it. That structure can be reapplied and learned. So, yeah, I I agree that if you look at highly creative people, you might say that they were maybe born with some creative talent. And that's fine. But even they use a structure to make them even more, to harness that creative talent. So the lesson for your listeners really is, hey, I don't care where you are on the creative scale. If you've been told all your life you're not creative, forget it. You now have a way to boost your creative output by harnessing these these patterns and using them in a structured way. So, you know, if there's patterns and there's a framework for it, why do you think people and organizations struggle so much with innovation? This is the great mystery to me. Uh, Chris, when I start a keynote, let's say to a group of CEOs, right? These are the the people with the power in an organization. These are the people that have the resources to cause change in organizations. And so, you know, I'll start a, a keynote and I'll say to them, okay, on a scale of one to 10, how important is innovation to the success of your firm on a scale of one to 10? And of course, anywhere I go, anywhere in the world, that answer is always a nine or a 10. But then I'll say, hey, on a scale of 1 to 10, how satisfied are you with the level of creativity in your firm? And on a scale of 1 to 10, <laughs> that answer is always 5 or less. <laughs> and right, I look and I say, hey, guys and gals, you're, what's wrong with this picture? Right? You, you rate it as a 9 or 10, but you're satisfied with it less than a 5. You're the CEOs. I don't get it. What's stopping you? And, of course, they kind of look down at their shoes and hmm, and, <laughs> <laughs> and And so I I kind of chide them a little bit. But I, in, in earnest, I say, tell me, you know, really tell me what's what's kind of holding you back. And somebody will raise their hand and say, well, you know, we don't have the time. And I say, that's nonsense. Come on. You're the CEOs. You can make the time if it's that important. And they'll say, well, it takes money. And I say, again, forget it. You've got money. Any public company or private company can raise the cash. It's not a resource issue. And they'll, they'll give me all kinds of excuses. And finally, somebody will raise their hand in the back of the room and they'll say, we don't know how to. 
And I go, hallelujah, we're getting somewhere. <laughs> you know, it's, it's about time that we just fess up to the fact that maybe we should see this as a skill. And when I put it in that context, like I'll say to them, think about other skills or, or parts of your culture that you've addressed. Let's say it's business ethics or it's quality or it's productivity or it's cultural sensitivity. I don't care. But look at innovation the same way. It's just another competency that you want to embed into the bones of your organization. And when you view it that way and realize that, in fact, there is a structured method that can be embraced, and it's not the only method. There are other principles of creativity and innovation that can be embraced and embodied and practiced in a regular drumbeat to make an organization more successful. And that's the I think that carries a good message for CEOs and they embrace this once they know about it. I've had people raise their hand and, and somewhat, somewhat angrily and say, gosh, darn it. How come I'm just hearing about this now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think when I first heard you speak, that was my exact sentiment. I was thinking, you know, this entire time in my life, I've been attempting to be creative and innovative and never knowing that there's actually a framework that probably would have gotten me a lot farther had I not just thinking it was, you know, thinking outside of the box. Oh boy. There's, there's that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that kind of leads me to, you know, in your book inside the box, a proven system of creativity for breakthrough results, you talk about thinking inside the box. So, so what is that? Everybody always talks about, you know, thinking outside of the box when it comes to innovation. Sure. Yeah, thinking outside the box, boy, that that is, in fact, the universal catchphrase, right, for all creativity. It drives me crazy. And it, here's why it drives me crazy. Most people don't know where that phrase comes from, and, and I'm going to share that with you now. And I'm going to start with a, a plea to your listeners to please never use that phrase again. <laughs> and here's why. Here's why. What people don't know is that phrase came out of a a study that was done in the 1970s by a famous researcher named P.J. Guilford. And what Guilford did was a study that used a well-known puzzle, a puzzle called the nine-dot puzzle. And if you're familiar with this puzzle, it's, it's three dots in a row, three rows of three dots that form essentially a box. And... The puzzle part of it is this. You have to take a pencil and with just four straight lines, connect all nine dots without lifting your pencil. And so if your listeners haven't seen this or know of this puzzle, I'd encourage them to try it. Just make three rows of three dots and then take your pencil and try to connect all those lines. It's really tricky. But there's a trick to this puzzle. There's a secret to this puzzle. And and the the simple secret is this, is that when you draw your lines on one of the lines, you have to go outside the box. You have to extend past the imaginary box created by those nine dots. And when you extend outside the box, it gives you an angle then to come down and, and catch a couple of the dots in the puzzle, again, going outside the box. And then again, complete the puzzle with your fourth line. And and maybe it's easier just if you Google nine-dot puzzle solution, you'll see pictures of it on Google very quickly. But here's here's my point. When when Guilford 
administered this puzzle, he found that on average, only about 20% of people could come up with the solution that I just described. And so he concluded, he said, if, you know, if we could just get people to think outside the box, they could be more creative. And boy, that phrase stuck, you know, it just spread the globe like, like wildfire. It was, it was, it just seems so to make sense, right? If you could get your mind outside what you're familiar with. Well, <laughs> guess what's, what happened? What people don't know is right after Guilford's study, two other researchers replicated the study, but added a second group of, of participants who were actually told the solution. The, the second group were, were told, you have to draw your lines outside the box created by the nine dots. And guess what happened? Even when they were told the solution, their rate of success was still 20%. They, they didn't improve wow. at all. Yeah, right? So what what this these two studies did is they disproved this idea of thinking outside the box. There's more to it than that. In fact, what other studies now have shown is that when you send the mind outside the so-called this imaginary box, outside into this vast, unconstrained space, what it does, Chris, is it overwhelms the mind. It, it tends to shut down our mind. It causes what we call idea chaos or idea anarchy. The mind struggles out in this unconstrained space. And hey, folks, look, listen. If you've ever been in an unconstrained, you know, typical brainstorming session, right? Oh, there's another word that I can't stand. A brainstorming session. And you've been said, you know, come on, guys, come on, let's come up with a great idea, <laughs> right? And you, you put your mind out of this vast space and it struggles. We've struggled. And what our book describes is that, and it's been well-researched based on, on groundbreaking research from my co-author, is that better thinking happens when you constrain the mind, so-called inside the box, in a tightly bound and a constrained way using a set of tools that essentially guide your cognitive process for you, that do your thinking process for you. In that scenario, boy, the mind becomes extremely capable at generating novel and creative solutions. Just the opposite of what you would think uh, and so thinking outside the box is, is truly a myth. Wow, that's powerful. <laughs> it's totally taken all of the truths that I've had in my years <laughs> of living and flipped them upside down. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So also in the book, you talk about that framework and that pattern identification and, you know, what exactly thinking inside the box entails. And so... Could you share with us a little bit about like, okay, so now we know we got to constrain the, the brain. I'll call it constrain the brain. Right. Uh, what does that look like? Right. So, and you use a very important word there, constrain the brain. It's in, in this method. And, and really it's been well known now that the, it's called the principle of constraints. Uh, it's one of the important principles of this method I'm about to describe for you. But constraints are, are actually a good thing. And I want your listeners to, to hear this carefully. Don't shy away from constraints. They're not a barrier to your success. In fact, they're necessary. Constraints are a requirement for creativity to happen because constraints are real. First of all, they're, <laughs> they're constraints of time and money and scope, but they also make the mind work harder and smarter. 
So this method I'm about to describe for you embraces constraints as well. In fact, it creates constraints for you. This method is called systematic inventive thinking, or SIT for short. And it's based on patterns, the patterns, as I alluded to before, that mankind has used for thousands of years. What's surprising is that the majority of innovations in the world can be explained by just five patterns. Five patterns, that's it. And I'll briefly describe those patterns, and then we'll talk to the uh, how you use them inside your head to actually create ideas. So these five patterns, they sound mathematical. Let me warn you up front. They're not really mathematical. So, for example, the first one we call subtraction. Many inventions were created by removing an essential element rather than adding new systems or functions. So look at something like an ATM machine, an automatic teller machine, right? It's, it's had the teller has, has, has been removed. There is no teller. Or a contact lens, right? What is a contact lens? It's a pair of glasses without the frame. Uh, the next technique is called task unification. Task unification is when you assign an additional job to an existing resource. And so an example of that would be like in your car, in your rear window, you'll have small wires running through it that are used for defrosting your windows for those that live in cold climates like me. But it's also the antenna for your car. And so that wire has two jobs. It's a classic example of task unification. The next technique is called multiplication. Many inventions are created by taking a component and creating a copy of it, but changing it in some way. So to go back to eyeglasses, a simple example was the invention by Ben Franklin, bifocals. A bifocal lens is embedded into the main lens. There's two lenses effectively, but they're different in terms of their refractive power. The fourth technique is called division. Many inventions were created by dividing a component in the system and rearranging it. You take it out and rearrange it in, in some way. And so think of a remote control of a TV or a thermostat. Any type of control system would be a simple example of division. The last pattern is very powerful. It's called attribute dependency. And with that very fancy name, all that means is this. Attribute dependency is when you take two variables, two attributes, two characteristics, one of the product and then one of its surrounding environment, and you create a dependency, a correlation between them. As one thing changes, another thing changes. And look at a product like transition sunglasses. As the light outside gets bright, the lens gets dark. Or windshield wipers in your car that speed up and slow down, depending on the amount of rain that's falling. Another great and classic example of attribute dependency. So these five patterns form the basis of this method called SIT. And it's a method now used by companies all over the world. Uh, We're training it more and more to big companies and small companies, nonprofit companies, governmental institutions. We're starting to teach it now in schools, which I'm really happy about because this is where ultimately it has to uh, reside. So I have a question. In our talk, you kind of 
alluded to some of the future work that you're doing, which includes kids. You gave us five patterns, and, and some people might be thinking, easier said than done. So tell us, tell me a little bit about your experience with children and innovation. Great. So it started years ago when my son was in, uh, in, in, in middle school, I want to say seventh grade. And he came home from school one day and he said, Dad, uh, the school is looking for volunteers to teach in what's called the after school enrichment program. And I, uh, I thought that'd be great. I thought I'll, I'll call the school and see if I could teach them these, these patterns, you know, teach the same method that I'm using uh, in my, my professional career, right? It'd be a nice opportunity. And I was curious too, to see would kids really be able to learn this? And honestly, I didn't know at that time uh, if this would really work. But here's the funny part of the story. I, I call my son's school. I introduce myself and they said, well, Mr. Boyd, what would you like to teach? And I said, I'd like to teach a course called How to Be an Inventor. The school said no. <laughs> the school said, no, sir, I'm sorry, you can't do that. Wow. I, I, yeah, right? I was shocked. I, I said, what? What do you mean? They said, well, you can't, you can't teach a kid how to be an inventor. That's impossible. Hey, this is our schools. Think about that. That's scary. And um, th that's their that's the prevailing wisdom. That's the the thought that, that creativity is in fact something you're you're born with. It can't be taught. Now, I the good news is I convinced them after many conversations that hey, I, look, I'm a professional. I do this for work. I, <laughs> I know how to do this. And so, in fact, they did. They let me teach. I had a group of about ten kids. Uh, and it was a great experience. I, I taught them the method. They used it successfully. I was so happy. I made little certificates for the, them at the end of the course. It was hilarious. Like I made these up these certificates, and it said, "You are now an inventor," and I, <laughs> I signed my name to it. And when I handed it to these kids, my God, you should have seen the looks on their little faces. They were just so excited. And I thought, oh my God, this is this is phenomenal. This is wonderful. The, there in our kids is this 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 uh, enormous amount of energy and passion and excitement about the ability to create things, and we have to find a way to nurture that, to to feed that, and and take structured methods like this into our schools. Before I finish, I'll tell you one last quick story. I, I taught this to third graders and fourth graders. That's that's how early that they can learn this. And one kid in particular, it was, it was so cute. His name was Sam and little Sam, this little third grader, he was able to use the method. I remember vividly, he was able to take something as common as an everyday umbrella. It, it happened to be raining that day. So I made all the kids use something germane to that day. And, it, and he, he was able to use the method and apply it and create a completely new to the world invention right in front of my eyes using this method. It, it almost sounds too good to be true. And, and But this is the beauty of patterns that they force you in a way to consider inventions and configurations you wouldn't have done on your own. And that's what I like about it. It, it has this, this structured, systematic appeal to it. I'm curious, what did Sam create? Oh, okay, so... <laughs> well, he... Out of the, if you remember the five patterns, there's one of the patterns. It's called multiplication, right? 
And the way multiplication works is you take a part of the umbrella, you take a part of it, and you make a copy, but then change it in some way. And then you have to figure out why that would be beneficial. That's, that's kind of how the method works in a nutshell. So here, here's little Sam, right? Yeah, I said, Sam, here, take my umbrella. And he looked at me and he said, sure, Mr. Boyd, what, what technique do you think I should use? I said, well, it's up to you. I said, well, maybe, why don't you try multiplication? So he said, okay. I said, now, Sam, how does multiplication work? He said, I have to take a component and copy it and change it some way. And I said, that's exactly right. So what component do you think he picked? He picks the handle, right? And I remember scratching my head thinking, oh boy, an umbrella with two handles, I don't quite get it, <laughs> right? But that's okay. That's how this method works at first. You, you're not supposed to know exactly what it's for at first. <clears throat> so I said to Sam, what are you going to do to make the handle different, Sam? And he said, well, um, I know, I'll put the second handle up on the spike. <laughs> so now I'm really confused. I'm thinking, you've got a handle at the bottom and a handle at the top. What kind of umbrella would you use for that? And I said, okay, Sam, uh, now, to, to use the method correctly, you've got to figure out why that would be beneficial. Who would want an umbrella like that? And he thinks about it, and he, he's looking up, and all of a sudden his face lights up, and he's so excited. He goes, oh, 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 Mr. Boyd, Mr. Boyd, I know. He says, if the umbrella is up and the wind blows it out, you just turn it around, grab the other handle, and you're ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I love it. I couldn't believe it. I his The expression on his face was priceless. And this, to me, is the, hey, look, if I could teach it to third graders, I could teach it to CEOs. Come on. And everybody in between. We, we, we really have to realize that there is now a method of invention and, and embrace this. For, for what we do to make ourselves, you know, more successful, more valuable at work. Yeah, I agree. You know, you, you said something earlier about hating the word brainstorming. How does what you're explaining differ from brainstorming? Right. It It's going to come as a surprise to your listeners. And, you know, I would ask them, don't shoot the messenger here. <laughs> <laughs> uh because I've had a long history with, with this thing called brainstorming and I've been trained by professional brainstorming facilitators. Most people don't know the history. Let me give a brief background on it. Uh, brainstorming was a term created in the late forties and fifties by a very smart man, a guy named Alex Osborne. And Osborne was an advertising executive who was frustrated in people's inability to generate creative ideas. And so he had a clever idea. He said, let's put a group of people in a room and have them, and this is a direct quote from his book. He said, we'll have them use their brain to storm a problem. And thus was born the name brainstorming. And man, it, I'll tell you what, there's another term like outside the box. It just was so intuitive it just seemed to make so much sense brainstorming and it spread the globe it was like a gift from god right this this thing was so <laughs> powerful and everybody just loved it and jumped on the bandwagon well the academic research community 
decided to study brainstorming in the laboratory. They, they were curious, you know, what would make for an optimal group size? What was the optimal amount of time? The first researcher to study brainstorming was a man named Taylor. He was at Yale University. And what Taylor did was a study that compared, let's say, a, a group of eight people using the brainstorming technique compared to a control group of eight individuals working by themselves on the same task. And then at the end of the period of time, the results of the eight individuals would be collected and aggregated and compared to the eight brainstorming group. And so it seems like a fair fight, right? A fair comparison or a test. Well, guess what happened in the very first clinical study? The control group, the eight individuals, outperformed the brainstorming group, producing 80% more ideas and better ideas. Chris, brainstorming doesn't work. It never did. And I know this sounds incredible that all these years, your listeners have been using a technique that they've been told works very well. And in fact, it doesn't. I have news for you. It's fake news. <laughs> it doesn't. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And here's the rest of the story. Taylor's results uh, upset a lot of people and other researchers rushed in to discredit them and, and run their own studies. And guess what happened? Study after study for the next 50 years proved brainstorming does not work. And, and for a number of reasons. And so what's interesting to me is that the psychology research community, they don't even study this. They don't debate this anymore. This is settled science. They know brainstorming doesn't work. They've put it aside. Yet we in the business community and the healthcare community and other professional communities continue to use brainstorming unabated when this body of research shows it doesn't work. Now, that's a big you know, mismatch, big misalignment. And, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, and if people you know, want to ver verify this, I'd encourage them to go out and look online and just search on something like you know, effectiveness of brainstorming or brainstorming research. Here's why it doesn't work for a couple reasons. There are many. First of all, it's incredibly unproductive. When you have eight individuals working as a group, if you just broke those eight individuals into four pairs instead of in, you know, eight, a one group of eight, hey, four pairs cannot perform one group of eight on any task. <laughs> the, the four pairs will produce more ideas working in, in pairs. Uh, that's one reason it's not productive. You know, but the, big, the biggest reason, Chris, is this, is that it goes back to thinking outside the box. Brainstorming, by definition, is meant to be unconstrained. And so the first rule of brainstorming, right? No bad ideas. Or what, what Osborne said was defer judgment. Don't judge the ideas. And it's meant to encourage people to come up with wild ideas. But what the research shows is that in the absence of any constraints, people struggle. They can't come up with an idea. And this is why I love the patterns. Think of the patterns as a, a cognitive roadmap. They channel your ideation for you. They structure your mind to work in a certain way for you to produce an idea that left unconstrained or unstructured, it wouldn't produce. And this is why um, brainstorming lacks 
the effectiveness. I, I really encourage your listeners to, to not use it. And I, I'll tell you right up front, I tell my clients, look, if you want to be more innovative, just stop brainstorming. Brainstorming actually does more to be a detriment to your innovation than a help. Uh, so again, don't shoot the messenger, but go out and satisfy yourself and look online and compare the, the data out there to see what you find. Wow. I mean, again, you're just, this entire conversation has really just kind of changed my entire mindset about creativity. So I have another question. Healthcare, half of it's, you know, product-based, but a large percentage of healthcare is really service-based. So would this method also work with service? This is a very common question, probably the second most common question after that first one, you know, does do, can creativity be learned? And in fact, yes, the answer unequivocally is yes. The method SIT is used very successfully on services. And here's why, a couple reasons why. First of all, a physical product and a service, in my mind, are, uh, are exactly the same. There's no difference between what a product does and what a service does. They, they both deliver value to some end customer. And I don't care if it's a physical product like a, a smartphone or a service like a, a banking service or an emergency room service in a hospital. It's a service, but they are still a collection of components. A product just happens to have everything all stuck together into one little form, whereas a service just happens everything spread out into different components, but they all do the same thing. And so when you apply the patterns to a, a product or a service, the approach is the same, the output is the same, same meaning it's productive and valuable in terms of new ideas. And so typically in a service, what we do here is recognize, whereas a product, we would look at the each individual component of a product. In a service, we look at all the aspects of uh, and components of that service. They become part of this pattern approach that we would use and apply when using the SIT method. Yeah, it works very well in healthcare. And I've work, worked with a lot of uh, different companies in the healthcare space, both providers of healthcare, uh, hospitals and whatnot, as well as healthcare companies like pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies as well. Equally effective between products and services. That's awesome. What could you say would be some ways to get started? You know, I have a team of folks that I lead and what are some things that I could do or other healthcare leaders to do to think more creatively? Where do we start? Great. Okay. Well, as a starting point, there are just a few things that I would encourage teams to to think about that are going to make them more, more creative before they get to the actual use of the method. Then I'm going to describe for your listeners, I'm going to describe one of the techniques in some detail. How does that sound? That sounds awesome. Okay, because it, you know, as you heard, I taught this to third graders like little Sam, right? So let's, let's go for it and describe in detail one of the five techniques and how you would use it, let's say, in a healthcare delivery setting. But in general, when I coach teams, the first thing I encourage them to do 
is to embrace constraints. Constraints are not a barrier, right? I mentioned this before, that they are in fact a driver of innovation. So I tell team before they start any ideation session of any kind, the first thing they want to do is make a list of the true constraints of the system, constraints of money, time. Uh, it could be regulatory constraints, compliance constraints, uh, constraints of, of physics, <laughs> things like gravity, whatever. Uh, and because you know what? It doesn't make sense to generate ideas that are going to violate those constraints. So start off with those. And what I find when teams do that, they realize right away that they are constrained and it actually makes them more productive, not less. So honor the constraints, outline those right up front. That's what forms the box in which you're going to uh, drive all your innovation, your ideation. The second uh, big idea is when, when teams work together, they want to clearly define the scope of what it is they're ideating. Meaning, get clear with what we call in the method an area, an imaginary area called the closed world. Now, don't worry about the name of it so much, but just the, the closed world is kind of draw a, an imaginary boundary around the, let's call it a zone where you're going to generate ideas. So in a product example, uh, if I were to look around the room here, I see a, a conference chair, for example. Well, we could say, okay, we're going to generate ideas just for this chair. Or we could say we want to generate ideas. No, we want to make the zone a little bit larger and include everything available in the conference room itself. And why that's so important is that this is because we have found that when teams aren't aligned around the starting point of where they're ideating, they fumble, they struggle, they are misaligned to the point where their ideation is unproductive. So just get clear about where you're generating ideas. Let's put it in a, in a hospital situation. Uh, if you're going to generate ideas, let's say you're the the, the head of the nursing unit for that particular institution, you need to be very clear. Are you generating ideas for emergency room scenarios? And even then, are you generating ideas for when patients come in and just the triage scenario? Or is it once they are placed in a room? Or is it aftercare? So it's very important for groups to chunk down and know exactly the confined space where they're innovating. Around the hospital, move around the hospital to uh, the floor. Are you going to innovate ideas just at the nursing station? Are you going to innovate ideas in the rooms? And then in a patient room, is it a particular part of the day? Is it the bedside washing? Is <laughs> something as simple as that? Hey, it, it, it may sound obvious or may not sound important, but trust me, it's really important. And here's why. When we get down to the part of the method where we want to apply a technique, we need that zone of innovation, that closed world clearly defined. And so the technique that I'd like to describe here on the podcast, Chris, it's one of the five techniques. It's called the division technique. Now, division is described, is defined as this. It's, it's taking a component of the system and then you divide it out 
divide one of those components, one of those parts of the system, this zone, and place it somewhere else. That's all. It's just a rearrangement pattern. And I described one of the examples, like a, like a remote control of a TV. There's a case where the controls have been divided off the main unit and placed on a little handheld thing we call the remote. It's a simple example of the division technique, and it's a very, very uh, abundant uh, pattern in the world. Another example, just to help people kind of frame this, for example, look at something like a, a drone, right? Like a military drone or a hobbyist drone. In that case, what's been divided off? Well, the pilot. The pilot's been divided off and placed somewhere else, like on the ground or in another airplane. Now, in services, we like this technique because you take a, a step of the service, a step of the process, and divide it out and place it somewhere else back into the process or in a different location in the zone of the closed world. Now, I didn't prepare anything ahead of time, to be honest with you, so let's go ahead and just do this uh, sort of unrehearsed and, and help people think through how they would do this. But if I were working with, let's say, a group of healthcare professionals on a floor uh, of a hospital, what we would do is take a particular service, and I'm going to go back to, if, if it's okay, something as simple as bedside uh, bathing, you know, wa washing a patient, right? How, how, how much more basic can we get than that, right? But if we were to take that basic service and lay out each and every step of that uh, bedside washing, bedside bathing, I guess you call it. We would list out the steps, a numbered list, one, two, three, four, five, all the way through from start to finish. And then the way the method works is this. We imagine, let's say, step six of that, that process. We divide it out and have it occur at some other point in time in the process or at some other location. So I'm going to imagine, for example, let's say, let's say step six of the process. Let's just imagine that is something where you um, are going to bathe a particular part of the, of the patient, say the, the area of recovery of, a, of a, a surgical patient. And when you get to that particular part, you defer that part of the bathing until the patient is brought to a different room, perhaps for uh, further care or application of new bandages. In other words, you retool the process to happen in different sequences than what you're used to. And what we find is even with the most simple processes, like what I'm describing here, you can see new improvements. You can see new little creative ideas. And Ultimately, Chris, this is what innovation is about. It's about small little advantages and, and ideas that create new value, new efficiencies, new improvements in outcome, effectiveness, as well as efficiency. And so in this simple example, I could imagine how if a healthcare provider, some of your listeners would take something they do every day and just list out the steps from start to finish a numbered list, and imagine rearranging them in different ways, one step at a time. Take, take one randomly and put it somewhere else randomly and simply ask yourself, okay, let's imagine we did it that way 
as crazy it sounds as it may sound at sometimes, why would it be beneficial? And I have found teams uncover tremendous new ideas, sometimes big, sometimes small, but all valuable. And hey, that's that's what it's all about, making ourselves more, more effective, more creative in the moment. And that would be a quick verbal description of how the division technique works. I mean, it sounds, it sounds really good. And just in that little example you gave, I could imagine all of the different things that could be impacted by uh, not cleaning the sterilized area at the same time as the bed bath. So when you first mentioned bed bath, I was thinking to myself, uh, there's no way to make that simpler. And then you just did so, or make it more effective. So um, I'm sold. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I, I've, and I, I'm not a professional in any way in terms of healthcare, and I, I've only had this described to me, uh, bedside washing. And but I, I, this is what I love about creativity in general: is when you're able to take something that you think is unchangeable, uh, you know, can't be improved, and by God, you 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 apply these patterns. It's the craziest thing. I mean, think of Sam with the umbrella, right? And uh, so I'm, I'm glad you recognize it. And I hope your your listeners do as well. And I, I really encourage them to, to to try and just take their everyday routine thing and lay out the steps of it. They're, they're going to be surprised just how that will sometimes unpack and help them see something they hadn't seen before. Yeah, I, I this is taking me back to when you had our team go through this exercise. And I just, I'd, I'd like to describe it to the listeners so that they can kind of see how, how shocking uh, the method can be. But you had us pick an everyday household item. And so me and my partner picked mascara. And then you asked us to make it the worst possible invention that there could be. And so our mascara actually would make your eyelashes fall out. And then you asked us to think about how we could market that to somebody. <laughs> and we said that we would market this mascara to people who wanted to remove hair. So you could use it for eyebrows and chin hair and all those pesky places you didn't want to have hair. And so, you know, the, the, what I uh, wanted the listeners to understand is as you go through this process, you'll think that there are things that are not possible. Um, You'll think that they're silly and that they're funny and that it makes no sense. And, you know, the takeaway I got was the more ridiculous it sounded, uh, the more interesting and more, you know, more weight the outcome could could hold in terms of, you know, what you see in terms of, you know, thinking differently. Well, and and there's there's a very important reason why people at first, when they use this method, they're going to be at times really shocked or uh, sort of perplexed with, hey, that's absolutely silly. Why would you want a mascara that that makes your eyelashes drop out? Or why would you want an umbrella with a handle at both ends? And and there's a very important reason why that happens in our brains. And, And let me describe it. We all have a psychological condition called fixedness. And fixedness is a cognitive bias that makes it very difficult for us to imagine other configurations than what we know. Hey, mascara is meant to make eyelashes look beautiful. It's not to make them fall out or take them out. 
umbrellas are meant to have one handle, right? Who needs two handles, right? You, you only need the one handle. And so our initial reaction, here's what happens when we use these patterns initially. There's going to be a point where you look at what the pattern created for you and you say, that's dumb. Boy, that's the stupidest thing I ever saw. And, <laughs> and that's part of it. That's part of it because of this cognitive bias called, called fixedness. Now, let me be clear. There's a good part of fixedness, too. And there's fixedness is sort of how we organize. Think of it as how we organize our everyday routines. In fact, it's, it's kind of a, a set of patterns in its, of itself. We use the same process to get dressed in the morning. We use the same route to work every day. We organize the world around us with a certain structure and a certain uh, way of thinking about it. But when it comes to being creative, that fixedness gets in our way. And what these patterns do is they help us break that fixedness. They help us overcome it so that we can look past what seems at first to be somewhat absurd or kind of silly and go, hey, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, what if we washed the surgical site in a, in a cleaner room environment? Or what if we had a different person do it that was trained in these types of abscesses or whatever it is? And, um, and that's what I like about it. It helps us confront our fixedness and then work past it and through it to see a value, a valuable idea where we would not have seen it before. Gosh, this this interview has been tremendous, right? I'm just so uh, grateful that, again, that you came on. If people want to find out more, so if they're interested in finding out how to implement the other four ways that we didn't get into today, or if they're looking to find you, where, where can they go? So, yeah, there's... Uh... A number of different places where this could be um, learned. You can learn more about this. One, of course, is at my website, drewboyd.com. And there I describe the patterns. I describe uh, different resources that are available out there in terms of uh, books and uh, video courses. Uh, for example, LinkedIn. LinkedIn has their LinkedIn learning. And if uh, people would like to learn more I've provided coursework there on this method, as well as some other creativity principles. Uh, and what we're finding is there's also a vibrant community of practitioners out there. Once again, we have a LinkedIn group uh, that people call Inside the Box, <laughs> and, uh, and people are, are uh, encouraged to consider joining that, as well as um, Again, the written re resources, our book inside the box now is in 17 languages around the world. We're, we're very happy the way um, the, the world communities on innovation are really stepping up and taking uh, this method to, to task. So th those are a few ways that I would en encourage people to learn about it. And people are always welcome to reach out to me by email, uh, drew at drewboyd.com. Excellent. Thank you, Drew, so much for coming on the show. Uh, it was such a treat to have you on. Thanks. It was great to be here. Take care. 